Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Fall is a gorgeous time of year in Atlanta, and with cooler weather now, an ideal time to be outdoors, especially if you appreciate birds. Jason Ward will tell us what to look for in the many varieties of birds passing through Atlanta during this season of fall migration. Atlanta's public art festival, Elevate, is an annual fall celebration, and among this year's highlights are two events with Destination Dance Atlanta, part of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. Artistic director Robert Battle will join us later in the hour. Always a treat to talk with him. Another treat is up next, this one in song. Respect, a new book for young children, is based on one of the greatest songs of the 20th century. Otis Redding's song lyrics are brought to the page with wonderful illustrations by Rachel Moss. Otis and Zelma Redding's daughter, Carla Redding Andrews, is the VP and Executive Director of the Otis Redding Foundation. She's with us now via Zoom. Carla, welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to be here with you today. As am I. How did this picture book come about? Well, it was quite interesting. Um, I think what happened was is a lot of organizations had been paying attention to what we at the Otis Redding Foundation had been doing as it relates to literacy and music and arts education. And then going back to um, how adamant my parents were about education and reading. So somehow we teamed up with Akashi Books to present this beautifully illustrated song lyric book that, that talks about what is so, so needed in the world today and, and will be always be needed in the world today. Oh, yes. In fact, I said your dad wrote one of the greatest songs of the 20th century, but it's really a song for our time and has never diminished in its impact or appeal. Now, your dad wrote the lyrics in 1965, and his song recording became a hit. Two years later, Aretha Franklin recorded her version, and that peaked at number one on Billboard's Hot 100 list in 1967. Aretha's interpretation has a feminist take on the song. It's very much a feminist anthem. How does this book present a children's story from your father's lyrics? 
Well, you know, what we really did with, with the book and, and when I was working with the book publisher and we were trying to determine, should we, should we intertwine the lyrics? Should we just use Otis Redding's lyrics or should we use Aretha's lyrics? And really we felt like Aretha's lyrics and, and her whole chain of the song kind of really relate over to, to kids and young girls today while still being able to filter over into a young male perspective you know it, it kind of takes on both sides of it actually and, and it talks about respect for yourself as a young woman or a young man and also respect for those the people that you should have around you what you want you got it and what you the gamut on, on both the, the, the female and the male perspective, in my opinion. Very much so. And I have been in radio for over 40 years. I've never felt my medium is limited, but I wish people could see these illustrations as we're talking, Carla, because they are as exuberant as the song lyrics. And I was wondering if you would talk about some of the images that are portrayed in the storybook and, and the messages, the lessons they convey. Absolutely. You know, what we really wanted to to come across in this is is not only for black and brown children, but for children around the world to understand that the word respect will get you to any path that you want to take, any positive path that you want to take, whether it's a teacher or whether you want to fly a plane or whether you want to serve your country. All of those things are about respect. And it's so beautifully depicted in the illustrations by Rachel Moss. And it's so colorful and it, it really just crosses the gamut in terms of diversity with, with the kids and, and the black and the brown and, and the, the white, it's just a cross-pollination of cultures. And, and it understands that respect is, is due to everyone and to be given by everyone. Indeed. And we have so many professions that are portrayed. I'm on a page where I see three women scientists. Well, actually, there are four. Two of them are little girls, and the little puppy dog is also reading the science book. We have a, we have a visual painter. We have ballet dancers, and <laughs> we have doctors. We have lawyers. We have judges. You yes, know, we have all just a whole gamut of of professions that we don't want to limit any imagination to what you can be with, with when you get respect and give respect. There's no limit to the imagination. And so we, you know, we just wanted to make sure that kids knew, listen, Otis Redding, Aretha Franklin, these people who worked so hard during their era knew that this one word would make all of the difference uh, in their lives. And, and both of them, certainly continue to to earn respect today by by what they left their legacy and now to be able to put it over onto the pages of a picture book is just amazing and it, it really takes the song to a whole new level because 
there are a lot of kids I'm sure who have who have heard their parents singing both versions of the song, but now they get to to put their creative spin on it and and read it from for themselves on, on, in this greatly illustrated book and taking it into the year 2020. When we get to the pages that say, sack it to me, sack it to me, sack it to me, sack it to me, all four members of the family portrayed in the book, the mother, the dad, the little girl, and the little boy, are costumed as superheroes with capes. Absolutely. Sock it to me, sock whatever you want to me, but I can still overcome and respect. A little respect is all I need to make that, to make my superpowers work for me. Carla, one of the most powerful lines in the song Respect is find out what it means to me. And after the story with illustrations concludes, the last two pages of the volume contain questions for the young reader or the young child being read to. Would you please tell us about that concluding section? Absolutely. I think, you know, the illustrators wanted to make sure that this was more than just a book of illustrations and, and words. It was really, a, a, it's a tool to interact with, with kids about what respect means. Can you respect someone even if you are mad at him or her? You know, things that, that certainly fit right into today's culture, into what's going on in the world with, with so much risk of planting negative seeds in your mind. But the learning tool in the back opens up the imagination for a, a, a child to understand, well, all I got to do is give a little bit of respect for myself and I, I will feel a whole lot better. And once I respect someone else, that's even really going to make me feel a whole lot better. So to be able to take these 10 questions uh, that have been created as an interactive learning tool, I think will really spark the imagination even more in kids on how important that the, the word respect means and what the, the lyrics in this song means. Mm. Carla Redding Andrews, I am not trying to flatter you when I say that I feel like this book is one of the best things to come out in 2020. Oh, <laughs> it is just pure joy and delivers a message so profound and it's so deeply needed now. I congratulate you and the illustrator Rachel Moss and this has just been such a delight. I am one who is in awe of your father's legacy, and thank you for continuing it through the foundation. Oh, thank you so much. You know, it, it was so important. This foundation was established on, on a whole dream or a premise that my father put in place in 1966 before his untimely death. You know, he was adamant about the importance of education, the, the importance of continuing education, the importance of literacy, the importance of music and arts education. And that's what we do. So, you know, to be able to partner with Akashi and with, with the illustrator Rachel Moss and to bring his, his lyrics, his, his one of his most famous songs to a young mind is, is certainly benefiting of what the mission of the foundation is. And, you know, we've got another one that's going to come um, in January. It will be illustrated to sitting on the dock of the bay. Oh. And it's really beautifully illustrated. We've already seen that one. It's a, about a, a, a cute little kitty cat traveling around the world, sitting on the dock and, and finding friends and trying to do what 10 people tell him to do. We are really excited about what has come out of these lyric pop titles, and especially the two books uh, from, from my father's legacy, Respect and Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes Carla Redding Andrews 
is the daughter of the late Otis Redding and VP and Executive Director for the Otis Redding Foundation. Their new children's book, Respect, will be released tomorrow. There will be more information on our website, wabe.org slash citylight. I left my home in Georgia And I headed for the Frisco Bay Cause I've got nothing to live for Look like nothing's gonna come my way So I'm just gonna sit on the dock of the field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Throughout the past several months, the word pivot has been used a lot, describing the process of a quick response to change. Dancers learn how to pivot on their feet early in their training, though the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater has added meaning to the metaphor. Robert Battle is the artistic director of the Alvin Ailey Dancers. He's with us now via Zoom. Robert, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you. So nice to be back. We last spoke on March 30th. Wow. Yeah, as you announced Ailey All Access, the initiative that brings dance into her home, streaming performances, classes, workshops. That initiative was a quick response to life during the early days of quarantine. And then not long after, our world erupted with more murders of innocent people. Would you talk about how Ailey has continued its ongoing commitment to bringing people together during our reckoning with racial injustice over the past six months? Yes, thank you for that. And through those efforts, I have to just mention this new world that we've been thrust into. Ailey All Access has reached through our efforts about 10 million people in 121 countries who have participated or who have supported us that may have never gotten the opportunity to see us. So I think that speaks to the mission of the company to bring dance to everybody. In terms of the social justice part and the racial reckoning that is happening, you know, this company was founded uh, on the brink of the civil rights movement, uh, where there was already a burgeoning civil rights movement sort of afoot, if you will. And Alvin Ailey, as an organization, but also the man, I think saw an opportunity to give voice to the voiceless through dance, through modern dance specifically, that he could have a platform for those stories to be told that weren't being told about the contributions, the struggles, the sense of overcoming adversity that speak to the Black experience on the concert dance stage. So in some ways, we've always been doing this work, but it certainly has even more meaning in this time of the pandemic, uh, in this time of racial reckoning, um, that we continue to make sure that people 
understand that this company really is about them. This company is about a better world that we want to see. The works that we do really are about the very things that we're dealing with at this time. And it's food for the soul. And it makes you think. It makes you, you think about some of these issues in different ways. Dance has a way of doing that wonderfully and sometimes ambiguously, but always intentionally. <laughs> I thought about the role of the Ailey Dance Theater as teacher and conscience. Yes. When a political rally was scheduled in Tulsa around Juneteenth, many, I think it's fair to say most Americans know nothing about the Tulsa Race Massacre in 1921. Donald Byrd choreographed a work about that horrific event for the Ailey dancers who were performing it right up to the lockdown. Robert, what went through your mind ahead of the news about Tulsa and the plans for a June political rally? You know, I I realized that once again, uh, the company had its finger on the pulse. The, the relevance of the work that we do, not knowing, you know, when I commissioned Donald Byrd. Um, at that point, I knew very little about the Tulsa Race Massacre. Um, and part of that is that a lot of these events were left out of the teachings uh, that happened in the school system. But the intersection that happened with what we were doing on stage and what was being unearthed, it felt even more meaningful that we were doing the work that that we were doing and that Donald Byrd had the instinct to make a dance about that particular event. And so we got a lot of attention, rightfully so, because we'd already started doing this piece of choreography that that really looked at that issue. So it was really timely. I find myself saying that word a lot when it uh, refers to the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, but it is true. And I think this is the kind of work that Alvin Ailey intended for us to be doing. Of course, doing other works that also entertain, uh, that, that have lightness to it as well. We don't want to say that every work we do is about social justice, but at its core, this organization and the work that we do is about reflecting on those uh, particular issues. And so this was just a wonderful moment where we realize as an organization, the impact that we can have uh, and that we can be a part of the conversation in our own way. Yes. I, for one, felt profoundly grateful, not only for being able to see Greenwood performed, to see that work performed, but also to have had the conversation with you and Donald Byrd and learn more about the event, the horrific event that, as we said, during that conversation we had in February, it's not in our history books, just as there's so little in our history books about Japanese internment camps. All Americans should know about this, and here you are with the Ailey dancers bringing it to us. When the dancers come here to perform every winter, as they have since 1976, we like to think of Atlanta's Ailey's second home. And in 2017, this was made official with the establishment of Destination Dance. What has this initiative provided Atlanta as well as the Ailey Company? I think right now, you know, with the Elevate uh, Festival, um, there's this great need and generosity when it comes to collaborating, you know, that people are sort of engaging with one another 
through the different art forms, not just dance, but poetry, through art, um, when I think of the High Museum, um, through conversations, when I think of the Center for Civil and Human Rights, you know, Dance Canvas, and, and on and on. I think that it's enriched both the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater and Atlanta um, to have these cultural and civic institutions, understanding that we're all sort of having the same goals in a way, to use art to elevate the conversation uh, and to enlighten. So it's been wonderful. These partnerships that have been forged, I think are really wonderful because there may be someone who is more inclined to go to a museum than to go to see a dance performance. But when you start to make the connections, then people feel, oh, now I can understand. This is a moving piece of art, a dance. And then I can understand the poetry is a spoken uh, dance in a way. And so just, just that alone, um, it makes everything richer. And if we've learned anything in this time of quarantine, uh, this pandemic, is that we, we do need each other. You know, even the act of wearing a mask, not so much about yourself, but your fellow human beings. I think that that to me is what Destination Dance in a way represents, that we can all support each other in this effort to not just entertain, but to educate, enlighten, and lift people up. And this is so necessary uh, in a time like this. So as we were sort of developing this, I don't think we realized just how impactful it would be and how in this time it's already set up, you know, so we don't have to reinvent the wheel right now. We just have to roll it with even more conviction to stay connected while we're apart. So during this annual public art festival, Elevate, there will be two Ailey events. Can you tell us what the troupe will perform? Well, one, I'm really excited about Lazarus being shown because Rennie Harris, of course, created uh, Lazarus for our 60th anniversary season. And that's a two-part ballet that really is inspired by the life of Alvin Ailey. But Rennie Harris, talk about a brilliant storyteller through street dance, or you can refer to it as hip hop, but he was able to make that story contemporary, but yet excavate things from the past that really reflects the things that are happening now. Because in the first act, he looked at the civil rights movement, he looked at lynching, he looked at the things that really, I think, were an impetus for this company to be created in the first place and founded in the first place. And then he also looks at, in the second act, the resilience of the human spirit uh, to go on using Nina Simone's wonderful music, Feeling Good. Fish in the sea, you know how I feel. River running free, you know how I feel. Blossom on the tree, you know how I feel. It's a new day, it's a new life for me, and I'm feeling good. And so ultimately, I think about what I see in Lazarus is what it reminds me about the power of the blues. And the notion is that you sing the blues not to feel bad, but to get happy, ultimately. And so he was able to do that in Lazarus. And it is so timely to see that work because history is not paid attention to, we're bound to repeat it. So seeing that work as a reflection, as a mirror to society, I think is, is, is really important. Uh, and certainly Atlanta knows a lot about that with all of the history of the struggle that is embedded in that city. I'm just really thrilled that people get to witness the brilliance of that again. I mean, it's just an incredible, incredible masterwork. It is. Robert Battle, thank you for reminding us that 
dance is as much a unifying force as it is an art form. It is always a joy to talk with you, and we can't wait till when it's safe for you to return to Atlanta. Yeah, we can't, I mean, we just love it there. We love the audience. We love the fabulous Fox. I mean, the, the sense of synergy with the audiences and with the company, there's a reason it's lasted for so many years because it just feels right and it feels good. So we're virtual, we're apart, but we're always with you as an organization and as a company because Atlanta means so much to us as artists. Robert Battle is the artistic director of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. Destination Dance Ailey Atlanta events with the Elevate Festival begin tomorrow online at 6 p.m. The Ailey dancers will also perform Lazarus on Thursday at 7.30 p.m. for Elevate. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Jason Ward is an Atlanta-based birder and host of the web series Birds of North America. When we last spoke in May, the coronavirus pandemic was still something we were getting used to, and birds were migrating north for the summer. A lot has changed in just a few months, and we look forward to hearing more from him now. Jason Ward, thank you for joining us, and welcome back to City Lights. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for having me back. It was a treat the first time, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you again. Well, since our last conversation, certainly the coronavirus has become far more familiar a presence in our lives. A white woman falsely accused a black birder, Christian Cooper, of threatening her while Cooper was birding in New York Central Park, and the fall bird migration is upon us. Let's start with Christian Cooper. He has since accepted an apology from the woman while the Manhattan District Attorney is prosecuting her for falsely reporting an incident in the third decree. Jason, so much transpired with that one incident. It was so disturbing. What was your reaction when you first heard about it? Yeah, you know, I first saw the video um, earlier this spring and I know Christian personally, so immediately upon watching the video, I could recognize his voice. And shortly afterwards, I realized the kind of situation that he was in. And I know Christian to be a, you know, strong, confident man. And hearing the trembling in his voice and the nervousness in his voice as he was having this altercation it really shed light on how dangerous he perceived the situation to be. I myself felt that myself, even, you know, in the second hand while watching it from, from my couch, I felt, you know, a small degree of danger as well. I felt scared for him. And I'm just glad at, at the end of the day, you know, everyone came out unscathed, physically speaking, but um, it could have, you know, wound up being a really sad situation. And, I think that is what really gets into the root of the issue here. The fact that she weaponized his blackness uh, against him and, and um, that, you know, unfortunately that could have had some, some pretty grim circumstances at the end there. Well, I think it was pretty sad as it was. It's interesting to hear you say you heard the trembling in his voice. That could only come from having known him before, because I think what astonished me, and I'm sure 
millions of other people who viewed it, was Christian Cooper's composure. I mean, he was very calm in, in saying to her, there's nothing to fear, that's not true, and to have the presence of mind then to videotape her, and she was just unhinged and lying. It could have been catastrophic. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt about that. And I wasn't surprised at how composed he actually was during that encounter. But once again, that that comes from knowing him personally. Um, you know, he handled that a, a lot better than than a lot of us would have. Among the many feelings that I experienced while watching that video, one of them was just pure anger. And uh, I don't know if I would have, you know, been able to stick around and continue to record and capture all of the behavior that this woman was exhibiting while the altercation was happening. I probably would have walked away. And, you know, moments like these are, they're important in kind of starting a lot of conversation that comes afterwards and, and really getting us to turn a mirror around on, you know, the way that we interact with each other, the birding world as well. It, it, there are a lot of interesting conversations have started as a result of that altercation in Central Park. Yeah, we look forward to hearing your thoughts on that. For those who may not have seen it, your very first episode on your web series, Birds of North America, featured Christian Cooper as a guest. How did you two meet? So my brother, who's been a birder for six years now, I've been birding for seven. My younger brother, Jeffrey, has been birding for six. He lived in New York and I lived in Atlanta and he knew Christian personally. They've worked together on a lot of different after school projects for kids uh, in, involving birds, of course. And when we were filming the pilot episode of Birds of North America, we were just kind of going with the flow. We knew that Central Park during spring migration was going to be a, go a must visit, a go-to area for a lot of birders. So we knew that if we chose a nice sunny day, there'd be a good chance that we'd bump into some pretty notable birders that day. And Christian was on our list of birders that we wanted to converse with. And Christian was he didn't have all day. He had, you know, work to get to. He had somewhere to be, but he was really, really kind with his time. And he just allowed us to, you know, pull him aside for about 15 to 20 minutes and interview him, despite the fact that he had places to be after that. It's just a testament to how, you know, kind and thoughtful he is as a person. Did what happened to Christian Cooper change the way you approach birding, Jason? It did not. I'll say that because nothing that happened in that clip, as alarming as it was, nothing that happened surprised me. I had an idea that an interaction with, with those characters involved, with a black man, white woman, uh, and, and the black man, you know, in, informing the white woman that she should do X, I, I am aware that that could turn into some hostilities. So has not changed my outlook on birding. It, I can't afford to allow it to change my outlook on birding because there's been decades and decades and decades of nature shows on TV and just wildlife enthusiasts in the public eye who have been white. And there, there isn't a face of representation for kids of color to look up to and, and, and aspire to be like uh, as they grow older. And fortunately enough, I have been granted a platform in which I am allowed to do this. And I'm doing this for the next generation of conservation superstars so that they can, you know, I can blaze trails for them so that they can do even better than, than the generation that's, that's living currently. So since I'm doing this for the future generations, I cannot afford to have my perspective change. I still have to go out there. I still have to produce content and I still have to reach out to communities that look like I do. And I will just add for anyone who may not have seen the video or heard about it, 
all he asked her to do was to put her dog on a leash, which was clearly stated on all of the signs in Central Park. Dogs are not supposed to be unleashed. Has what happened to Christian changed the way you talk about birding with other people of color? It has to an extent, because after the video, I saw a lot of comments from folks on the internet saying, you know, this is why I don't go to the parks, and this is why I don't partake in certain activities. And I don't think that that should discourage folks from partaking in those activities. However, I do think that there's a certain amount of caution that we should exercise when, if we do decide to go hiking or to go birding or just to go running in, in, in a space, right? So I highly recommend if you're going into a unknown area to go with a friend, you know, go, go with a buddy to just be cautious of your surroundings. There have been times where I've gone birding and I noticed that the cars that are passing me by are slowing down and they're getting longer looks and they're wondering what I'm doing there. And there's that, you know, that spidey sense that that kind of starts to tingle. And I realize, you know what, let me cut this short and, and leave this area before I wind up having an interaction that's less than pleasant. So I have inserted a lot of cautious messaging in my advocating for the outdoors when it comes to people of color. But I still, still highly encourage people to get out and explore and to experience nature. In June, you took part in organizing Black Birders Week. Please tell us about the event and, and how it was received. Yeah, so this came about due to a GroupMe group that I started April of 2019. I started out as a group of about 10 scientists, Black scientists, and it's grown over the year to over a hundred of us who live all over the globe. There are people who are, you know, living internationally in Germany and in and Canada and different countries, right? So when the Christian Cooper video reached our group, it was shared a couple of times and then conversations started. And really quickly we realized that something had to be done, that it was time to change the narrative and, and shine a spotlight in celebration of black birders and black people in wild spaces. So several of the group members, Anna, Gifty, Danielle, Chelsea, Joseph, they were the ones who founded, who came up with the idea of Black Birders Week. And within less than 48 hours, we had the flyers designed. We had a itinerary of events. We had special guests, including Christian Cooper himself. And we did a couple of days worth of promotion on Twitter and on Instagram and Facebook. And we launched and it was received way wider and better than we ever expected. We were able to do interviews with Forbes, with CNN, with so many different publications out there. And we never imagined that it would be this popular. And it's inspired a lot of other people in different science disciplines to start their own weeks. We've seen Black Botanists Week. We've seen Black and National Parks Week. So we've seen a lot of other weeks kind of sprout up because of the movement that we started back in June. And that's exactly what, you know, the intent was there. The intent was to get those conversations started, get people feeling a little bit uncomfortable because nothing changes unless people feel a little bit of discomfort there. So a lot of uh, productive conversations are starting. We still have a long way to go ahead, but the, the groundwork is being laid. That's fantastic to hear. Among those interviews you gave was one with our news reporter, Molly Samuel, which was great. Now, you've had all summer to go birding during a pandemic. Have fewer cars and fewer planes resulted in any surprises specific to birding? You know, that's a really good question. And I don't know truly if we'll be able to answer that question until a couple of years from now, until we're able to compare the data with uh, when things start to return back to normal. Then we'll start to see if this year, you know, there was any uh, peculiar changes in the patterns of birds. It, it sure seemed 
as if there were a lot more birds and a lot louder birds out there. But that could be attributed to the, you know, less background noise from the cars and the planes kind of roaring by. So, but yes, what I have experienced is I've become a lot more familiar and intimate with the birds in my own neighborhood. Just being able to go outside every day or almost every day. But um, being able to go out and really reconnect with the local birds because the past couple years have been really exciting for me. I've been traveling a lot. So, of course, you know, this year, not a lot of travel. No. And um, I've been able to reconnect with the, the southeastern birds. Ah, now, we're in the midst of fall bird migration. What does that look like for folks here in the metro Atlanta area? Are there any particular birds we should watch out for who might be passing through? You know, spring migration is magnificent. It's amazing. Fall migration is arguably better. And I say that for a couple of reasons. One, it's longer. So fall migration starts in August, in early August. You can argue that some, some will say it starts in late July. Wow. And it continues throughout the end of October. So we're in the midst of it right now. And things will really start to ramp up towards the end of September and the beginning of October. That's when things will be at its peak here in the Southeast. And the other reason why I love it so much is because it's a little more challenging than spring migration. And it's more challenging because the birds have molted. They've shed their, their bright, beautiful, colorful feathers. And now they're wearing a duller coat. So they're tougher to identify, which I love the challenge of, of <laughs> you know, being able to identify those birds. And they're not singing as much either. So no, no need to try to attract the mate, no need to try to defend territories. They're just passing through for the most part. So they are a lot quieter this time, which of course is more challenging again for birders. And the weather is going in the reverse direction, right? So the leaves are falling off the trees and the weather's progressively getting cooler and cooler. And I love cold weather. So <laughs> bring it on. But yeah, so the warblers will start to trickle through. We'll start to see a lot of birds of prey moving as well. And um, things just start to get real interesting around October. I love cold weather too. I'm with you. Interesting to hear about the shedding or molting, do you call yes. it? It's sort of like fall fashion for humans with <laughs> colors are often more subdued or darker in the fall. What should we expect for winter birding in Atlanta? Mm. You know, winter birding is also very exciting. And I think that it's accentuated by the fact that we don't really have harsh winters here. So we still have manageable weather that we can go outside and enjoy nature in. And we're rewarded because ducks are everywhere. So right now, all of the really cool ducks are further north. And so right now in the summertime, we're dealing with mostly mallards and wood ducks, which are beautiful. But when the winter rolls around, then we'll start to get American widgeon, northern pintail, green winged teal, blue winged teal, you name it. There are so many species of duck that stop over and overwinter. They spend the winter here in the Atlanta area. And that is one of my favorite parts uh, of, of the wintertime. There's also, since I love birds of prey, they're my favorite family of birds, there is a hawk that visits the southeast uh, only during the winter. It's called the sharp-shinned hawk. It's a small version of the Cooper's hawk, and they're about the size of a blue jay. They're really, really small, but they're very aggressive. They make up for their size with their, their bite. Uh, they are very aggressive, very fierce, fearsome um, birds, and they grace our area during um, the wintertime as well. So it's really great to see that. In addition to the last thing, the big giant flocks of blackbirds. So all throughout the year, we have red-winged blackbirds, we have common grackles, we have brown-headed cowbirds, we have European starlings that are all just doing their own things, uh, establishing their own separate territories and just finding food, raising babies. And then when winter rolls around, they all join forces. So you'll see flocks of 
three, four hundred of them together in a field looking for food and their safety in numbers. So they're all watching out, they're all watching each other's backs and they're all gathering together. And that's always a fun time just to see them all flock together like that. If you're driving on I-20, either direction from Atlanta all the way to like Conyers during dawn and dusk, you'll see flocks of blackbirds fly over the highway as they, uh, in the morning, as they leave their overnight sleeping area to find food. And at dusk, you'll see them flying the opposite direction, returning to their overnight sleeping area. So it's really, really fun to see just waves of blackbirds fly over the highway. Well, it's fun to hear you talk because, Jason Ward, your enthusiasm and passion for nature, for birds in particular, just make us want to be outside and look up in the sky. Thank you so very much for joining us again. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to come on and be a nerd about the birds. And I I <laughs> highly recommend exactly what you just said. Highly recommend folks get out there, spend a little bit of time in their yards or just in, the, in a local green space. And even if you don't have binoculars, just close your eyes and allow yourself to hear the bird sounds and, you know, take a couple deep breaths and things will start to get a little bit better. Birds are therapeutic. Jason Ward, Atlanta-based birder and host of the web series, Birds of North America. There will be more information and a link to the web series on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. City Lights is WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 11 to learn about Honey on the Page, a treasury of Yiddish children's stories in a new English translation. Also, comedian Louis Black joins us just before the release of his new stand-up show. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker produced this segment with birder Jason Ward. Kevin Rinker is also our engineer. I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. I am very close to that next round number of followers. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.